Part two of Book One, Chapter Eight of These Twain by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part two of Chapter Eight. Four. Finished your green gauge, Auntie? asked Clara after the pause which ensued while the adults were accustoming themselves to the absence of the children. And it was Maggie who answered rather eagerly. No, she hasn't. She's left it to the tender mercies of that Maria. She wouldn't let me stay, and she wouldn't stay herself. These were almost the first words, save murmurings as to cups of tea, quantities of sugar and of milk, etc., that the taciturn Maggie had uttered since Hilda's arrival. She was not sulky. She had merely been devoting herself and allowing herself to be exploited in the vacuous manner customary to her, and listing receptively, or perhaps not even receptively, offering no remark. Save that the smooth working mechanism of the repast would have creaked and stopped at her departure, she might have slipped from the room unnoticed as a cat. But now she spoke as one capable of enthusiasm and resentment on behalf of an ideal. To her it was scandalous that Greengage Jam should be jeopardised for the sake of social pleasures, and suddenly it became evident she and her auntie had had a difference on the matter. Mrs. Hams said stoutly and defiantly with grandeur, well, I wasn't going to have my eldest grand-nephew's twelfth birthday party interfered with for any jam. Here, here, said Hilda, liking the terrific woman for an instant. But mild Maggie was inflexible. Clara, knowing that in Maggie very slight symptoms had enormous significance, at once changed the subject. Albert went to the back window, whence, by twisting his neck, he could descry a corner of the garden. Said Clara, smiling, I hear you're going to have some musical evenings, Hilda, on Sunday nights. Malice and ridicule were in Clara's tone. On the phrase musical evenings, she put a strange disdainful emphasis, as though a musical evening denoted something not only unrighteous, but snobbish, newfangled, and absurd. Yet envy also was in her tone. Hilda was startled. Ah, who told you that? Never mind, I heard, said Clara darkly. Hilda wondered where the Bembos, from whom seemingly naught could be concealed, had in fact got this titbit of news. By tacit consent, she and Edwin had as yet said nothing to anybody except the Orgreaves, who, alone with Tertius Ingpen and one or two more intimates, were invited, or were to be invited, to the first evening. Relations between the Orgreaves and the Bembos scarcely existed. "'We're having a little music on Sunday night,' said Hilda, as it were apologetically, and scorning herself for being apologetic. Why should she be apologetic to these base creatures? But she couldn't help it. The public opinion of the room was too much for her. She even added, We're hoping that old Mrs. Orgreave will come. It will be the first time she's been out in the evening for ever so long. The name of Mrs. Orgreave was calculated by Hilda to overawe them and stop their mouths. No name, however, could overawe Mrs. Hamps. She smiled kindly and with respect for the caprices of others. She spoke in a tone exceptionally polite, but what she said was, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The deliverance was final. Auntie Hamps was almost as deeply moved about the approaching desecration of the Sabbath as Maggie had been about the casual treatment of Jam. In earlier years she would have said a great deal more, just as in earlier years she would have punctuated Bert's birthday mouthfuls with descants upon the excellence of his parents and moral exhortations to himself. But Auntie Hamps was growing older and quieter, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, meant much from her. 
Hilda became sad, disgusted, indignant, moody. The breach which separated her and Edwin from the rest of the family was enormous, as might be seen in the mere fact that they had never for a moment contemplated asking anybody in the family to the musical evening, nor had the family ever dreamed of an invitation. It was astonishing that Edwin should be so different from the others. But after all, was he? She could see in him sometimes bits of Maggie, of Clara, and even of the unspeakable. She was conscious of her grievances against Edwin. Among these was that he never, or scarcely ever, praised her. At moments, when she had tried hard, she felt a great need of praise. But Edwin would watch her critically, with a damnable, grim detachment of the five towns towards a stranger or a returned exile. As she sat in the stuffy dining-room of the Bembos, surrounded by hostilities and incomprehensions, she had a sensation of unreality, or at any rate of a vast mistake. Why was she there? Was she not tied by intimate experience to a man at that very instant in prison? She had a fearful vision of him in prison, she sitting there in the midst of Maggie, Clara and Auntie Hamps. Was she not the mother of an illegitimate boy? Victimised or not, innocent or not, she, a guest at Bert's intensely legitimate birthday fate, was the mother of an illegitimate boy. Incredible. She ought never to have married into the Clayhangers, never to have come back to this cackling provincial district. All these people were inimical towards her. Because she represented the luxury and riches and worldly splendour of the family, and because her illegitimate boy had tempted the heir of the Bembos to blasphemous wickedness, and because she herself had tempted a weak Edwin to abandon chapel and to desecrate the Sabbath, and again because she, without a penny of her own, had stepped in and now represented the luxury and riches and worldly splendour of the family. And all the family's grievances against Edwin were also grievances against her. Once, long ago, when he was yet a bachelor and had no hope of Hilda, Edwin had prevented his father, in dotage, from lending a thousand pounds to Albert upon no security. The interference was unpardonable, and Hilda would not be pardoned for it. Such was marriage into a family. Such was family life. Yes, she felt unreal there, and also unsafe. She had prevaricated about George and the penknife and she had allowed Clara to remain under the impression that her visit to the house was a birthday visit. Auntie Hamps and Destiny between them would lay bare all this lying. The antipathy against her would increase. But let it increase never so much, it still would not equal Hilda's against the family, as she thrilled to them. Their narrow ignorance, their narrow self-conceit, their detestation of beauty, their pietism, their bigotry, revolted her. In what century had they been living all those years? Was this married life? Had Albert and Clara ever felt a moment of mutual passion? They were nothing but parents, eternally preoccupied with oughts and ought-nots and forbiddances and horrid reluctant permissions. They did not know what joy was, and they did not want anybody else to know what joy was. Even on the outskirts of such a family, a musical evening on a Sunday night appeared a forlorn enterprise and all the families in all the streets were the same. Hilda was hard enough on George sometimes, but in that moment she would have preferred George to be a thoroughly bad, rude boy and to go to the devil, and herself to be a woman abandoned to every licence, rather than that he and she should resemble Clara and her offspring. All her wrath centred upon Clara 
as the very symbol of what she loathed. "'Hello!' cried the watchful Albert from the window. "'What's happening, I wonder?' In a moment Rupert ran into the room, and without a word scrambled on his mother's lap, absolutely confident in her goodness and power. "'What's amiss, Tuppany?' asked his father. "'Tired,' answered Rupert, with a faint, endearing smile. He laid himself close against his mother's breast and drew up his knees, and Clara held his body in her arms and whispered to him. "'Amy, you'd play with me,' he murmured. "'Wouldn't she? Naughty, Amy!' "'But me tired, too!' He glanced upward at his mother's eyes in sympathy. And immediately he was asleep. Clara kissed him, bending her head down and with difficulty reaching his cheek with her lips. Auntie Hamps inquired fondly, "'What does he mean, mother tired, too?' "'Well,' said Clara, the fact is, someone was so excited they stopped my afternoon sleep this afternoon. I always do have my nap, you know. She looked at Hilda. In here, when the doors close, they know Mother mustn't be disturbed. Only this afternoon, Lucy or Amy, I don't know which, and I didn't inquire too closely, forgot. He's remembered it, the little Turk. Is he asleep? Hilda demanded in a low voice. Fast. He's been like that lately. He'll play a bit, and then he'll stop and say he's tired and sometimes cry, and he'll come to me and be asleep in two jiffs. I think he's been a bit run down. He said he had a toothache yesterday. It was nothing but a little cold. They've all had colds, but I wrapped his face up to please him. He looks so sweet in his bandage. I assure you, I didn't want to take it off again. No, I didn't. I wonder why Amy wouldn't play with him. She's such a splendid playmate, when she likes. Full of imagination, simply full of it. Albert had approached from the window. With an air of important conviction, he said to Hilda, Yes, Amy's imagination is really remarkable. As no one responded to this statement, he drummed on the table to ease the silence, and then suddenly added, Well, I suppose I must be getting on with my dictionary reading. I'm only at S, and there's bound to be a lot of words under U, beginning with um, you know. I saw at once there would be. He spoke rather defiantly, as though challenging public opinion to condemn his new dubious activity. Oh, said Clara, Albert's quite taken up with missing words nowadays. But instead of conning his dictionary, Albert returned to the window, drawn by his inexhaustible paternal curiosity, and he even opened the window and leaned out, so that he might more effectively watch the garden. And with the fresh air there entered the high, gay, inspiriting voices of the children. Clara smiled down at the boy sleeping in her lap. She was happy. The child was happy. His flushed face, with its expression of loving innocence, was exquisitely touching. Clara's face was full of proud tenderness. Everybody gazed at the picture with secret and profound pleasure. Hilda wished once more that George was only two and a half years old again. George's infancy and her early motherhood had been very different from all this. She had never been able to shut a drawing-room door or any other door as a sign that she must not be disturbed. And certainly George had never sympathetically remarked that she was tired. She was envious. And yet a minute ago she had been execrating the family life of the Bembos. The complexity of the tissue of existence was puzzling. 5. When Albert brought his head once more into the room, he suddenly discovered the stuffiness of the atmosphere and with the large, free gestures of a mountain air and a sanitarian, threw open both windows as wide as possible.
the bleak wind from the moorlands surged in, fluttering curtains and lowering the temperature at a run. "'Won't Rupert catch cold?' Hilda suggested, chilled. "'He's got to be hardened, Rupert has,' Albert replied easily. "'Fresh air, nothing like it. Does him good to feel it.' Hilda thought, "'Pity you didn't think so a bit earlier.' Her countenance was too expressive. Albert divined some ironic thought in her brain, and turned on her with a sort of parrying jeer. "'And how's the great man getting along?' In this phrase, which both he and Clara employed with increasing frequency, Albert let out not only his jealousy of, but his respect for, the head of the family. Hilda did not like it, but it flattered her on Edwin's behalf, and she never showed her resentment of the attitude which prompted it. "'Edwin? Oh, he's all right. He's working.' She put a slight emphasis on the last pronoun in order revengefully to contrast Edwin's industry with Albert's presence during business hours at a children's birthday party. He said to me as he went out that he must go and earn something towards Maggie's rent. She laughed softly. Clara smiled cautiously. Maggie smiled and blushed a little. Albert did not commit himself. Only Auntie Hamps laughed without reserve. Edwin will have his joke, said she. Although Hilda had audaciously gone forth that afternoon with the express intention of opening negotiations on her own initiative with Maggie for the purchase of the house, she had certainly not meant to discuss the matter in the presence of the entire family. But she was seized by one of her characteristic impulses, and she gave herself up to it with the usual mixture of glee and apprehension. She said, "'I suppose you wouldn't care to sell us the house, would you, Maggie?' Everybody became alert and as it grew apparent that the company was assisting at the actual birth of a family episode or incident, a peculiar feeling of eager pleasure spread through the room, and the appetite for history-making leapt up. "'Indeed I should,' Maggie answered with a deepening flush, and all were astonished at her decisiveness and at the warmth of her tone. "'I never wanted the house. Only it was arranged that I should have it, so of course I took it.' The long, silent victim was speaking. Money was useless to her, for she was incapable of turning it into happiness. But she had her views on finance and property nevertheless, and though in all such matters she did as she was told, submissively accepting the decisions of brother or brother-in-law as decrees of fate, yet she was quite aware of the victimhood. The assemblage was surprised and even a little intimidated by her mild outburst. "'But you've got a very good tenant, Maggie,' said Auntie Hamps enthusiastically. "'She's got a very good tenant, admitted,' Albert said judiciously and almost sternly. "'But she'd never have any difficulty in finding a very good tenant for that house. "'That's not the point. "'The point is that the investment really isn't remunerative. "'Maggie could do much better for herself than that, very much better. "'Why, if she went the right way about it, she could get ten percent on her money. "'I know of things. "'And I bet she doesn't get three and a half percent clear from the house, not three and a half. "'He glanced reproachfully at Hilda. Do you mean the rent's too low? Hilda questioned boldly. He hesitated, losing courage. I, I don't say it's too low, but Maggie perhaps took the house over at too big a figure. Maggie looked up at her brother-in-law. And whose fault was that? she asked sharply. The general surprise was intensified. No one could understand Maggie. No one had the wit to perceive that she had been truly annoyed by Auntie Hamp's negligence in regard to Jam, and was momentarily capable of bitterness. "'Whose fault was that?' she repeated. 
You and Clara and Edwin settled it between you. You yourself said over and over again it was a fair figure. I thought so at the time. I thought so at the time, said Albert quickly. We all acted for the best. I'm sure you did, murmured Auntie Hamps. I should think so indeed, murmured Clara, seeking to disguise her constraint by attention to the sleeping Rupert. Is Edwin thinking of buying, then? Albert asked Hilda in a quiet, studiously careless voice. We've discussed it, responded Hilda. Because if he is, he ought to take it over at the price Mag took it at. She oughtn't to lose on it. That's only fair. I'm sure Edwin would never do anything unfair, said Auntie Hamps. Hilda made no reply. She had already heard the argument from Edwin, and Albert now seemed to her more tedious and unprincipled than usual. Her reason omitted the force of the argument as regards Maggie, but instinct opposed it. Nevertheless, she was conscious of sudden sympathy for Maggie, and of a weakening of her prejudice against her. "'Hadn't we better be going, Auntie?' Maggie curtly and reproachfully suggested. "'You know quite well that jam stands a good chance of being ruined.' "'I suppose we had,' Auntie Hamps concurred with a sigh, and rose. I should be able to carry out my plan, thought Hilda, full of wisdom and triumph, and she saw Edwin, owner of the house, with his wild lithographic project scotched. And the realisation of her own sagacity, thus exercised on behalf of those she loved, made her glad. At the same moment, just as Albert was recommencing his flow, the door opened, and Edwin entered. He had glimpsed the children in the garden and had come into the house by the back way, there were cries of stupefaction and bliss. Both Albert and Clara were unmistakably startled and flattered. Indeed, several seconds elapsed before Albert could assume the proper grim, casual air. Auntie Hamps rejoiced and sat down again. Maggie disclosed no feeling, and she would not sit down again. Hilda had a serious qualm. She was obliged to persuade herself that in opening the negotiations for the house she had not committed an enormity. She felt less sagacious and less dominant. Who could have dreamt that Edwin would pop in just then? It was notorious, it was even a subject of complaint that he never popped in. In reply to inquiries, he stammered in his customary, hesitating way that he happened to be in the neighbourhood on business and that it had occurred to him, etc., etc. In short, there he was. Aren't you coming, Auntie? Maggie demanded. Let me have a look at Edwin, child, said Auntie Hamps, somewhat nettled. How set you are! Then I shall go alone, said Maggie. Yes, but what about this house business? Albert tried to stop her. He could not stop her. Finance, houses, rents were not real to her. She owned, but did not possess such things. But the endangered jam was real to her. She did not own it, but she possessed it. She departed. What's amiss with her today? murmured Mrs. Hamps. I must go too, or I shall be catching it. My word, I shall. What house business? Edwin asked. Well, said Albert, I like that. Aren't you trying to buy her house from her? We've just been talking it over. Edwin glanced swiftly at Hilda, and Hilda knew from the peculiar, constrained, almost shamefaced expression on his features that he was extremely annoyed. He gave a little nervous laugh. Ah, oh, have you? he muttered. 6. Although Edwin discussed the purchase of the house quite calmly with Albert and appeared to regard it as an affair practically settled, Hilda could perceive from a single gesture of his in the lobby as they were leaving 
that his resentment against herself had not been diminished by the smooth course of talking. Nevertheless, she was considerably startled by his outburst in the street. "'It's a pity Maggie went off like that,' she said quietly. "'He might have fixed everything up immediately.' Then it was that he turned on her, glowering angrily. "'Why on earth did you go talking about it without telling me first? he demanded, furious. "'But it was understood, dear.' She smiled, affecting not to perceive his temper, and thereby aggravating it. He almost shouted, "'Nothing of the kind! Nothing of the kind!' "'Maggie was there. I just happened to mention it.' Hilda was still quite placid. "'You went down on purpose to tell her, so you needn't deny it. Do you take me for a fool?' Her placidity was undiminished. "'Of course I don't take you for a fool, dear.' I assure you, I hadn't the slightest idea you'd be annoyed. Yes, you had. I could see it on your face when I came in. Don't try to stuff me up. You go blundering into a thing without the least notion, without the least notion. I've told you before, and I tell you again, I won't have you interfering in my business affairs. You know nothing of business. You'll make my life impossible. All you women are the same. You will poke your noses in. There'll have to be a clear understanding between you and me on one or two points before we go much further. But you told me I could mention it to her. No, I didn't. You did, Edwin. Do be just. I didn't say you could go and plunge right into it at once. These things have to be thought out. Houses aren't bought like that. A house isn't a pound of tea, and it isn't a hat. I'm very sorry. No, you aren't, and you know jolly well you aren't. Your scheme was simply to tie my hands. She knew the truth of this, and her smile became queer. Nevertheless, the amiable calm which she maintained astonished even herself. She was not happy, but certainly she was not unhappy. She had got, or she was going to get, what she wanted. And here was the only fact important to her. The means by which she had got it, or was going to get it, were negligible now. It cost her very little to be magnanimous. She wondered at Edwin. Was this furious brute, the timid, worshipping boy who had so marvellously kissed her a dozen years earlier, before she had fallen into the hands of a scoundrel? Were these scenes what the exquisite romance of marriage had come to? Well, and if it was so, what then? If she was not happy, she was elated, and she was philosophic, and she had the terrific sense of realities of some of her sex. She was out of the Bembo house, she breathed free, she had triumphed, and she had her man to herself. He might be a brute. The five towns, she had noticed as a returned exile, were full of brutes whose passions surged and boiled beneath the phlegmatic surface. But he existed, and their love existed, and a peep into the depth of the cauldron was exciting. The injustice or the justice of his behaviour did not make a live question. Moreover, she did not in truth seriously regard him as a brute. She regarded him as an unreasonable creature, something like a baby, to be humoured in the inessentials of a matter of which the essentials were now definitely in her favour. His taunt that she went blundering into a thing, and that she knew naught of business, amused her. She knew her own business and knew it profoundly. The actual situation was a proof of that. As for abstract principles of business, the conventions and etiquette of it, her lips condescendingly curled. After all, what had she done to merit this fury? Nothing. Nothing. What could it matter whether the negotiations were begun instantly, or in a week's or a month's time? 
Apron would have dilly-dallied probably for three months or six. She merely said a few harmless words, offered a suggestion, and now he desired to tear her limb from limb and eat her alive. It was comical. Impossible for her to be angry in her triumph. It was too comical. She married an astounding personage. But she had married him. He was hers. She exulted in the possession of him. His absurd peculiarities did not lure him in her esteem. She had a perfect appreciation of his points, including his general wisdom. But she was convinced that she had a special and different and superior kind of wisdom. And a nice thing you've let Maggie in for. Emin broke out afresh after a spell of silent walking. Let Maggie in for? she exclaimed lightly. Albert ought never to have known anything of it until it was all settled. He'll be yarning away to her about how he can use her money for her, and what he gets hold of she'll never see again. You may bet your boots on that. If you'd left it to me, I could have fixed things up for her in advance. But no, in you must go, up to the neck, and ruin everything. Oh, she said reassuringly, you'll be able to look after Maggie all right. He sniffed, and settled down into a bitter disgust, quickening somewhat his speed up the slope of Acre Lane. Please don't walk so fast, Edwin, she breathed, just like a nice little girl. I can't keep up with you. In spite of his enormous anger, he could not refuse such a request. She was getting the better of him again. He knew it. He could see through the devices. With an irritated swing of his body, he slowed down to suit her. She had a glimpse of his set, gloomy, savage, ruthless face, the lower lip bulging out. Really, it was grotesque. Were they grown up, he and she? She smiled almost self-consciously, fearing that passers-by might notice his preposterous condition. All the way up Acre Lane and across by St Luke's churchyard into Trafalgar Road, they walked thus, side by side, in silence. By strange good luck they did not meet a single acquaintance, and, as Edwin had a latch-key, no servant had to come and open the door and behold them. Edwin, throwing his hat on the stand, ran immediately upstairs. Hilda passed idly into the drawing-room. She was glad to be in her own drawing-room again. It was a distinguished apartment after Clara's. There lay the Dvorak music on the piano. The atmosphere seemed full of ozone. She rang for Ada and spoke to her with charming friendliness about Master George. Master George had returned from an informal cricket match in the manor fields and was in the garden. Yes, Ada had seen to his school clothes. Everything was in order for the new term shortly to commence. But Master George had received a blow from the cricket ball on his shin, which was black and blue. Had Ada done anything to the shin? No, Master George would not let her touch it, but she had been allowed to see it. Very well, Ada. There was something beautific about the state of being mistress of a house. Without the mistress, the house would simply crumble to pieces. Hilda went upstairs. She was apprehensive, but her apprehensiveness was agreeable to her. No, Edwin was not in the bedroom. She could hear him in the bathroom. She tried the door. It was bolted. He always bolted it. Edwin, what is it? He opened the door. He was in his shirt sleeves and had just finished with the towel. She entered and shut the door and bolted it. And then she began to kiss him. She kissed him time after time on his cheek so damp and fresh. Poor dear, she murmured. She knew that he could not altogether resist those repeated kisses. 
they were more effective than the best arguments or the most graceful articulate surrenders. Thus she completed her triumph. But whether the virtue of the kisses lay in their sensuousness or in their sentiment, neither he nor she knew. And she did not care. She did not kiss him with abandonment. There was a reserve in her kisses and in her smile. Indeed, she went on kissing him rather sternly. Her glance, when their eyes were very close together, was curious. It seemed to imply, we are in love, and we love. I am yours, you are mine. Life is very fine, after all. I am a happy woman, but still, each is for himself in this world. And that's the bedrock of marriage, as of all other institutions. Her sense of realities again. And she went on kissing, irresistibly. Kiss me. And he had to kiss her whereupon she softened to him and abandoned herself to the emanations of his charm, and her lips became almost liquid as she kissed him again. Nevertheless, there was still a slight reserve in her kisses. At tea, she chattered like a magpie, as the saying is. Between her and George there seemed to be a secret, instinctive understanding that Edwin had to be humoured, enlivened, drawn into talk. For although he had kissed her, his mood was yet by no means restored to the normal. He would have liked to remain majestic within the tent of his soul, but they were too clever for him. Then, to achieve his discomfiture, entered Johnny Orgreave with the suggestion that they should all four, Edwin, Hilda, Janet and himself, go to the theatre at Hambridge that night. Hilda accepted the idea instantly. Since her marriage, her appetite for pleasure had developed enormously. At moments, she was positively greedy for pleasure. She was incapable of being bored at the theatre. She would sooner be in the theatre of a night than out of it. Oh, do let's go, she cried. Edwin did not want to go, but he had to concur. He did not want to be pleasant to Johnny Orgreave or to anybody, but he had to be pleasant. Be on the first car that goes up after 7.15, said Johnny, as he was departing. Edwin grunted. You understand, Teddy, the first car that goes up after 7.15. All right, all right. Blithely, Hilda went to beautify herself. And when she had beautified herself and made herself into a queen of whom the haughtiest master printer might be proud, she dispatched Ada for Master George. And Master George had to come to her bedroom. Let me look at that leg, she said. Sit down. Devious creature. During tea, she had not even divulged that she had heard of the damaged chin. Master George was taken by surprise. He sat down. She knelt and herself unloosed the stocking and exposed to the little calf. The place was black and blue, but it had a healthy look. It's nothing, she said. And then, all in her splendid finery, she kissed the dirty, discoloured shin. Strange, he was only two years old and just learning to talk. Now then, missus, here's the tram, Eben yelled out loudly, roughly, from below. He would have given a sovereign to see her miss the car but his inconvenient sense of justice forced him to warn her. Coming, coming! She kissed Master George on the mouth eagerly, and George seemed unusually to return the eagerness. She ran down the darkening stairs, ecstatic. In the dusky road, Ebbin curtly signalled to the vast ascending steam car, and it stopped. Those were in the old days when people did what they liked with the cars, stopping them here and stopping them there according to their fancy. The era of electricity and fixed stopping places and soulless, conscienceless control from London had not set in. Eben and Hilda mounted. 
Two hundred yards further on, the steam tram was once more arrested, and Johnny and Janet joined them. Hilda was in the highest spirits. The great affair of the afternoon had not been a quarrel, but an animating experience which, though dangerous, intensified her self-confidence and her zest. End of Part 2 of Book 1, Chapter 8